Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm Damien Fantato, digital editor of FT Advisor. This spring, as many of us are returning to the pub and getting haircuts, the Financial Conduct Authority is reviewing the 10% drop rule. This controversial rule was introduced by MIFID II in 2018 and means clients must be informed when their portfolios drop by 10% or more. The rule has been suspended since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic due to increased market volatility, a suspension which the FCA has said will continue until the end of 2021. But now that the UK has left the European Union, what next for this rule? Should the FCA read at its last rights? Can it be saved? And what can advisors learn from it about communicating investment performance with their clients? With me to discuss this are Tim Fastham, Director of Government Relations and Policy at PIMFA, and Greg Davies, Head of Behavioural Science at Oxford Risk. Hello both. Hi. Hi. I'm going to ask you both to start by summarising what your brief thoughts are on the, on the 10% drop, what the pros and the cons of it are. Tim. Well, I think I think the intention of the 10% rule is, is good, which is that investors should be engaged with what they're investing in and should uh, have an understanding of uh, their performance and be engaged in decision making uh, within that. But the the problem is, is this is a a sort of single signal that they've chosen to send out that um, means that individuals just see that one aspect of performance or and it's always going to be in a way misleading because investment performance is to a certain extent inherently relative so the 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 investor just gets told your your investment has dropped by 10 percent. the two two real challenges one is well what's the rest of the market done because if the market's dropped by 20 and you've dropped by 10 that's great. That's a great news story. Um, if the market dropped by 10 and then rebounded straight back up by 15, um, you've got to have that that kind of context in terms of, of uh, to get any sense of meaning out of it. Um, because otherwise, you're simply, if, if it's dropped by 10, the market's dropped by 10, it may be uh, entirely an, a non, non-story. The other factor is, if you are proactively telling people something, they will assume that is because you should do something. So there's a sort of bias there that will make people go, well, it's dropped by 10%. You're sending me this this special information. That must mean that I should be doing something I should get out. And we know people have a tendency to buy at the top of the market and sell at the bottom um, because they're they're sort of loss averse. So they don't want to miss out on the rise. They don't want to uh, get the fall, uh, further falls. So it, arguably not only sends uh, information to the investor that isn't really meaningful unless they have the wider context it potentially gets them to act at a time where acting may be the worst possible thing for them to do and if you go back uh, in the wider context well the fca suspended it because it was volatile market because they recognized many of these problems that that particularly um, that the market could rebound very quickly and that someone may act and regret that action. They also gave some uh, guidance, if you remember, to pension investors saying, actually, the best thing to do right now may be to do nothing, to sit, to wait for the short term volatility to come out and then make decisions when we know what the longer term economic environment looks like. Because we have to remember most of these investments 
are medium to long-term investments. And part of why you might have a financial advisor or a wealth manager is to keep focused on the longer term so that you're not getting, you're not overreacting to these short-term uh, short-term anomalies. Greg, uh, Tim has touched on some of the behavioural uh, aspects there. What, from a behavioural science point of view, do you think are the, the, the pros and cons of having something like a 10% drop off? Well, I mean, Tim's covered an awful lot of it already, actually. Um, but I, it's, I, I would say, yes, well-intentioned, but from a behavioural perspective, mostly harmful. Um, and th there's a whole run bunch of reasons for that. But one simply is, if you send a bunch of investors out of the blue a letter that effectively says, don't panic, then you're going to have, for most of them, entirely the opposite effect. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I agree with Tim completely that for most investors, at most times in most markets, the best thing to do is as little as possible. If you're a long-term investor, and I'd say any other sort is an oxymoron, you want to be sticking with things, you want to be sitting tight. And the problem with the 10% the, the, the drop rule is it's highly specific and rule-based rather than principles-based. So, you know, there, there are all sorts of times when you might think, OK, it's useful for someone to know this, but absent all of the all the broader context of, well, what does your portfolio look like? What does the broader context of your wealth look like when, you know, what are your future spending plans? It's 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 a it's a very specific rule based thing in isolation that is likely from a behavioral perspective to raise the emotional content of people's decisions at a time when we absolutely want to be doing the opposite. And what's particularly interesting, of course, is that the rule was suspended the minute it, it became a biting rule. Now, you can't, I can't imagine a single situation where the 10% drop rule would be invoked when markets weren't volatile. So if you're going to drop it and suspend it the minute it, because markets are volatile at the time, well, you know, what's the point of having a rule that you have to suspend the moment it's operational? So I, I think, by and large, um, that intent of we want people to be engaged with their financial circumstances and to be aware at the high level of what's going on. That's good. This was not the way to do it. So, Greg, just to stay, stay with you, what impression have you got of the impact that it's had? It's, it's had a relatively short life because it, it, it was suspended at the beginning of 2020. So it's only been around for two years or so, like, uh, in effect. Yeah. Um, what impression have you got of its um, impact? Well, I think for most of the time, it was pretty, operation, pretty non-operational for most people. When it did have an impact in, in the sense of it being triggered was a time when everyone was pretty aware of what was going on anyway, because it was coupled with big news events. So I don't think it added a great deal to people's awareness last March in times of COVID. You know, we were we were all panicking about everything anyway. And I think probably as a result, those people who got letters, it probably didn't make much difference to them either way. The situations where I'd be more worried about it is when, you know, markets get particularly volatile at a time when we're not watching it and, and, it, and it triggers that, that sort of panic. But I, I think for the most part, it hasn't had a great deal of effect either way, except in so far as that also, of course, places an operational and administrative burden on the advisors to do something that is perhaps not particularly helpful for them either. No, I, I would agree with that. I think the main impact is is operational. It's it's on firms that have had to create systems and processes for this, but also get their head around how to communicate with a, a customer at a point and with a message that they don't necessarily think they should be communicating. 
Um, so there is a, a real challenge uh, there for them about how they ensure that, that they communicate in a way that doesn't um, lead customers to panic. Although, as Greg says, it's very difficult to say, you know, there's been a 10% drop and you shouldn't worry about it. You shouldn't do anything. Everything's fine. You should stick and hold it out. It's a hard message to to deliver, even though it is almost uh, most usually the correct one. But having those systems in place, having uh, simply the cost of communication is yet another regulatory burden on firms. In terms of, of consumer impact, I mean, the challenge we have, and, and I'm afraid I don't have any data on the extent to which this is true, but in times of volatility, we do see people going into cash. Um, and uh, certainly during COVID, we've seen quite significant levels of cash investment. Now, quite a lot of that is is new investment because uh, people have had lower costs, lower travel costs, lower lower social costs. Um, and so they've sort of started saving um, almost by accident, uh, simply because they haven't been able to spend. Uh, and most of that money has stayed in, in cash, which it's this sort of ongoing fallacy that that is that's safe. That's the safe option. Whereas actually, if you'd been invested during this period, you may well have done very well, particularly uh, with the the April rally and now with the positive um, news coming out on on vaccines. Instead of being invested in something that's supposedly safe, where you're almost certainly um, receiving a below inflation. Uh, rate of return. So it is, again, that um, view of protecting customers. And, and PIMFA put this in our response to the Treasury, actually, on the, the FCA's objectives, a view of protecting that is very much um, looking at what can we do to avoid any kind of loss rather than maximise gain. And, and one of the things we've recommended at PIMFA is to actually move away from the FCA having an objective consumer protection to one that says regulation should incentivize good consumer outcomes, which may well mean looking at how you encourage people to invest in real assets above cash. And the 10% rule does absolutely nothing to help with that. So what, what should the FCA do as part of its review, Tim? Uh, scrap it completely? Can the 10% rule, drop rule be saved through some sort of reform? Well, I think even uh, at the time it was originally discussed with MIFID, there was fairly wide scepticism um, in the UK on, on this rule. I think, I think the way to do it is to look again at what's the objective. So what can we do to ensure that people are engaged, that people have the information that they, they need, and that that information is appropriate for the type of investment that they've um, they've gone for. So if they have a portfolio manager, if they have a wealth manager, they are being, uh, they have asked someone to invest on their behalf to make these decisions and to monitor their investments. Um, and so the 10% rule really doesn't make very much sense for them because they're not managing their own individual investments. They're paying someone to do that. And so they simply need to make sure that the, the, the communication is clear um, about the overall performance of their portfolio and the actions that they've taken and the wider market context. If you have execution only, then I think there is a there is a useful discussion to have about how you ensure that people are aware of what's happening to their investments when they have made those decisions on their own 
And uh, I think there, there may be, particularly as technology development develops, opportunities to look at how that information is communicated. But yet again, it has to be more holistic than, than a 10% rule. It's got to be something that adds meaningful information to the, the investor. And Greg, from a behavioural point of view, what would you do with the, with the 10% drop rule? I, I would scrap the rule, but I do think that some of the, the systems and the technology that are useful for purposes of tracking the rule and when to invoke it could be usefully repurposed for other things. So the point is not 10%. The point is, as an ongoing, as an ongoing principle over every investor's journey, I want to be having an appropriate dialogue with them. So when their portfolio drops 5%, 6%, 7%, all of these are potential engagement opportunities to be able to bring them in, talk to them about whether they should be sitting tight or not. And at Oxford Risk, you know, we, we are building behavioral client engagement tools, which we sometimes rather whimsically call our nudge engine, um, to be able to do exactly that. So it is using data to track the portfolio and track the personality of the client, uh, financial personality assessment, and hyper-personalize the communication along the way. So. Dropping the rule doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk to people about what's happening to their portfolio. We should just do it in a, in a targeted and systematized way. The, the other thing that I think is important, though, is when someone's portfolio does drop substantially, it actually affects their risk capacity. And I think we need to weave that in a bit more fundamentally. If suddenly, and this is particularly true of people who have retired or are just about to retire, their sequencing risk problem gets bigger. Suddenly, I have to fund my withdrawals from a smaller pot, and that is a particularly dangerous moment. So to be able to, rather than just rely on an annual review process, if something happens like, like last March, we need to, or wealth managers, financial advisors, need to be able to very rapidly say, which clients do I actually use this as an opportunity to slightly increase risk, because they're now got a smaller part and for which clients particularly those who, who are withdrawing or in drawdown in any way there you do have to batten down the hatches a little bit and so i think the whole annual review process is a bit too slow and clunky to be able to deal with suitability in an ongoing dynamic way that's really required by these things and what as a financial advisor do you think um people can learn from the various pros and cons of, of, of the 10 percent drop rule in terms of how they communicate with their clients more broadly? Well, for me, the main thing is in times of crisis, you want people, you want to calm people down. You want to give them emotional comfort. You cannot do that from a standing start once you're in the crisis. You only do that if over the preceding year, two years, three years, four years, you've actually been engaging with them and having conversations with them through the ups and downs. So for me, the value of something of taking the 10% drop rule and turning it into a stream of conversation, a stream of engagement over years, is you're actually, the, the main value of that is emotional preparation for those times when the markets do drop. And that I think is in incredibly valuable because if we just wait until we're in a crisis and then try to talk people out of it, you know, talk, talk, talk people off the ledge, it is much more difficult than if we've been having an ongoing dialogue. And I think that dialogue, that engagement is the most uh, valuable thing we can take out of it. Yeah, I think the, the lesson is um, really taken from, from why it doesn't work. And I'm really glad to be speaking with, with Greg today because um, as a 
a recovering economist myself, um, I've, I'm particularly fascinated by, by behavioral economics and behavioral science. And the reason the 10% rule doesn't work, uh, as we've discussed, is because of the way the human mind works and, and the human kind of emotions work. And that's what you've got to think about when you communicate to your client. Your client is going to favor today over tomorrow. They are going to be loss averse. They are going to, um, you know, they're, they're going to be overconfident in certain ways. They're going to um, respond emotionally, as, as Greg's talked about. And that means you've got to communicate them in a way that helps them really understand what's happening. Because let's not forget, there will be times when a 10% drop is the start of a collapse. And it would be, you know, we're absolutely not saying that if, a, if, if an investment's dropped by 10%, you should just sit in it. So it's not saying people, you know, what we're saying is the 10% rule doesn't give you enough information to know whether you should do something or not. And that your biases will mean you will see that single point of data and most likely respond in one particular way. So as an advisor or as a firm, your role is to make sure they have that wider context, that they understand what is going on in the wider market and what is going on within their investment. And that you understand where their biases are likely to take them so that you can protect their longer term interests. And that means you've got to know them, and this is the big value of one of the main values of financial advice. You get that personal relationship. You get that individual knowledge. Uh, and it means you've got to talk to them as a human being. You know, you've got to emotional intelligence is an incredibly important skill for, for financial advisors and for anyone involved in financial communication. Because in the end, that's what's going to drive people's uh, behavior. So giving them that reassurance that they know the right action has been taken, whether that is or, or the right action to take, whether that's to come out or whether that's stay invested, it means that you've got to be, you've got to really think about the, the real human being at the end of your, your communication. And the 10% rule is, is a classic example of, of something where, where they're expecting people to be completely rational and just go, well, thank you very much for this data. I will now make a completely rational decision. And that's just not how the real world works. Tim, just to close off, uh, obviously the 10% drop rule was a, was a Europe-wide initiative as part of MIFID II. To what extent do you think that UK advisors are, are doing a pretty good job on, on communications or to what extent do you think that the 10% drop rule was needed in, in the UK? I think there was general skepticism uh, that, that it was needed in, in the UK. And, you know, we have uh, some of the highest regulatory standards in, in the world, not just Europe, and particularly for financial advisors where, you know, MIFID in a way was Europe trying to catch up with, with the UK. I mean, it's based on, on existing UK rules. So we have very, very high quality financial advisors and wealth managers um, that do think very carefully about about um, their clients that do think very carefully about how they communicate but it's an important area and it's something you can always improve on and I think many of our members are always looking for how they can communicate better how they can engage better how they can get their client to to be more engaged with their their investment and so there's always lessons to be learned but I think the the professionalism and the, um, uh, the, the the sort of strength of the UK advice and wealth management industry 
means that actually this was was far less of an issue than it may well have been in in other European countries. I don't think the ten percent drop rule was needed, but I always think that uh, better communication is needed. Uh, it's better consideration of people's financial personality and. You know, the suitability framework talks about willingness to take risk and financial ability to take risk. So risk tolerance and risk capacity. It doesn't talk in any way about people's emotional ability to take risk. And I think I think that is needed as a, as a bigger part of the of the of the advice framework. The other thing that I think is needed, again, is more dynamic suitability. We, we've got to stop relying on on sketchy annual review processes and start to think if these drop if these drops happen, who do I need to talk to? Firstly, emotionally, who do I need to talk off the ledge? And that doesn't mean sending everyone a 10% drop letter. It means targeted communication. And secondly, who do I need? Who, who's at risk of having to draw out big chunks of their portfolio? So who do I need to change the, the solution some, somewhat? And if we've got both of those things, it means the whole advice process can be more dynamically responsive to changing circumstances. But it has to be tailored to the individual client. Great. That was um, interesting. Thanks so much, Greg. And thanks so much, Tim. And thanks very much for listening and tune in again next week for the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.